This is the Green Street News. Patty and Doug Wood and our worldwide network of experts with your weekly update on what in the world is happening and how it may affect your life and your health. Welcome back. One in every three Americans can expect to hear the words, you have cancer, sometime in their life. Despite 50 years of Richard Nixon's war on cancer, very little progress has been made in finding a cure for the disease. Meanwhile, our supermarkets, big box stores, and shopping centers are filled with products that contain chemicals proven to cause cancer. So maybe it's time for a new war on cancer. That story and Patty with the Week's headlines all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. Okay, Patty Wood, so what happened in the world of environmental health this week? Okay, lots of things, but I have culled it down to just a couple of things that I think our audience will be interested in. The first one is published in The Guardian, written by Tom Perkins, one of our favorite writers. Okay. And it is entitled, EPA sued over pesticide-coated seeds devastating impacts on U.S. wildlife. Environmental groups are suing the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency over pesticide-coated seeds they say have devastating environmental impacts and are spread largely without regulatory oversight. The suit alleges the neonicotinoid seeds are now spread on about 150 million acres of U.S. farmland and up to 95% of the pesticide on the seed sheds, polluting nearby soil, water, and air. Didn't we just pass something on neonics? Uh, The legislature passed a neonics bill yeah. But the governor has not signed it yet. Okay. The seeds are so dangerous to wildlife that just one can kill a bird, the group notes. Neonicotinoids are a controversial class of chemicals used in insecticides widely spread on cropland to treat for pests, but which a growing body of science has found harms pollinators and other insects not targeted by the chemical. Neonicotinoids work by destroying an insect's nerve synapse, causing uncontrollable shaking, paralysis, and death. While neonicotinoids can be sprayed on cropland, about 95% of it is distributed via seeds. The chemicals are water-soluble and easily leach into soils and streams, and clouds of neonicotinoid-laced dust released during seed plantings have caused massive bee die-offs. Neonicotinoids from three major producers affect about 75% of all endangered species, the EPA has recently found, and the UN reported cropland is now about 50 times more toxic than just a quarter of a century ago, contributing to an insect apocalypse. Say that, say that again, how much more toxic? And the UN reported cropland is now about 50 times more toxic than just a quarter of a century ago, contributing to an insect apocalypse. Holy Caruso. The chemicals are so destructive that the European Union banned their outdoor use, while Canada has also imposed restrictions. So why are we still using these things? I don't get oh, it. Oh, because we make them and we make money. That's what it's all about. The suit also challenges the EPA's exemption of the seeds from registration as pesticides under the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, which is also called FIFRA. Registration would trigger closer scrutiny of their environmental and health impacts and force the EPA to weigh the seeds' benefits against their costs. The agency would have to show the seeds do not cause unreasonable or adverse effects to the environment, as is the standard under FIFRA. EPA science has found neonicotinoids harm endangered species while providing little benefit in terms of crop yield. So let me get this straight. So even though it's a pesticide, it doesn't have to be registered? 
the EPA is exempting seeds from registration. Oh, okay. Not the pesticide itself. Pesticides but... under the federal insecticide. In other words, they're not registering seeds that are coated with pesticides. And the suit is challenging that. Of yeah, course no it kidding. should. Of course. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yikes. 50 times more toxic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. This next article is published in the Washington Post, written by Shira Ovide. The title is 5G was an overhyped technology bust. Let's learn our lesson. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Mm. People are so excited about their 5G phones. I don't know why. Yeah, well, just listen to this. Okay. Starting about three or four years ago, America's big phone companies and smartphone manufacturers, including Apple, wouldn't shut up about 5G, the next generation of cellular internet networks. AT&T, Verizon, and other American phone companies blanketed us with commercials that bragged how 5G would make your phone faster and better and help physicians spot cancer earlier. You might have a 5G phone now. Did it make a significant impact in your technology experience? No. You might even want to turn off 5G because it can drain your phone's battery. One lesson is that we can't trust companies to be honest about how today's buzzy technologies, including artificial intelligence, driverless cars, and the metaverse, will or won't change our lives. Oh, really? So you can't believe the technology companies? Really? Okay. There were two problems with 5G. At first, in the United States, it didn't work as advertised. People who tested 5G service found it was sometimes available on just a block or two or was slower than 4G cellular networks that were in place. Companies sometimes said that we were getting a 5G connection when it was the same old 4G service. The second problem is now that 5G service is more broadly available in the United States. Lots of us who have 5G can't really tell the difference. Yes, it's true that a phone connected to a 5G network can theoretically download a full-length movie in seconds rather than many minutes. But real-world impact of 5G shows that technology improvements on paper aren't always relevant to you. There are lots of reasons your phone might flake out on your family FaceTime call. (laughs) Having a 4G connection instead of 5G is almost never the issue. The technology is fine. The marketing pitches were a mistake. Yeah, lots of hype. Not so much actual action. You know, they've been using this, oh, you can download a movie in in mere seconds. Nobody downloads movies anymore. Everybody's streaming. You don't need 5G. That's right. I mean, 5G can't make your phone faster. It can't make your, you know, your Uncle Johnny speak any faster when you have to hang on the phone with him. Okay. All right. Okay, and this is a little bit about what happened to us, uh, you know, in the past week or so. Wildfire smoke reacts with city pollution, creating new toxic air hazards. So smoke wasn't bad enough. Smoke wasn't bad enough, but listen to this. So this was published in Scientific American, written by Devin Farmelow. Smoke from massive Canadian wildfires has been blowing thousands of miles across the U.S., blotting out the sun and shrouding many cities in a cough-inducing haze. As the smoke drifts with the wind, it also creates a new hazard along the way that is greater than the sum of its parts. A troubling ozone cocktail that results from a chemical reaction between wildfire smoke components and urban air pollution. Scientists have long known that ozone is a byproduct of the reaction between sunlight and chemicals in wildfire smoke called volatile organic compounds and nitrogen oxides. 
if ozone is high in the atmosphere, it is beneficial because it blocks harmful ultraviolet rays. But ozone at Earth's surface can cause breathing problems and other health issues. A study published earlier this year in Environmental Science and Technology has shown that the smoke can create ozone even when all the nitrogen oxide in it is gone. As plumes blow over cities, any VOCs that have not already chemically reacted have another chance to mix with the abundant levels of nitrogen oxides that are produced by the burning of fossil fuels in urban areas. You know who talked about this early on was Rachel Carson. The ability of chemicals to come together spontaneously to create new compounds that can be yeah. really deadly. Yeah. Much of the attention on air quality issues caused by the wildfire smoke that has blanketed the eastern U.S. in recent days has focused on particulate matter, fine particles that can be breathed deeply into the lungs and pose considerable health risks. But prolonged exposure to elevated ozone levels is also dangerous. It can exacerbate asthma and cause coughing, a sore throat, and difficulty breathing, particularly in children, older adults, and those who spend a lot of time outside. Ozone concerns aren't just for cities near wildfires. VOCs can be long-lasting, meaning that even fires from more than 1,000 miles away can increase ozone levels in nitrogen oxide-filled cities. And climate change heightens the risk because it is leading to more frequent and more intense wildfires. Stephen Brown, an atmospheric chemist at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and a co-author of the new study said, quote, this is a serious issue right now. We face a very different challenge now that we have this response to climate change. These new emissions that are coming from wildfires present a challenge to people who want to see continued improvement in air quality, end quote. When unhealthy ozone levels are present, the Environmental Protection Agency recommends staying indoors, buying an air purifier, limiting outdoor recreation to the early morning and evening, and wearing an N95 mask. You know, pretty soon we're not going to be able to go outside. There will probably be times that we will not be able to go outside. Yeah, long periods of time when it's just really unhealthy to be outside. Okay. This last one is a report from Arthur Furstenberg, who's the author of The Invisible Rainbow. And he's commenting on the deaths of these racehorses that we have been seeing recently. Yeah, Rather alarming this. that we're losing, you know, that many horses, but so anyway. what's happening? I'll read a little bit of it. Okay. Racehorses are among the most finely tuned, exquisitely sensitive creatures on earth. So what happens when you give them all cell phones to wear during a race? Hmm. They start dropping like, well, horses. That is exactly what started happening this spring at Churchill Downs in Louisville, Kentucky, home of the world-famous Kentucky Derby. Beginning on April 29th and in every race on every day thereafter, every horse was fitted with a device that they had never worn before. It is a wireless device shaped like an iPhone that fits into the cloth underneath the saddle on the horse's back. Horses also began wearing these devices this spring during morning workouts. This, quote, stride-safe device monitors the horse's movements 2,400 times per second throughout the race, sending 2,400 pulses of radio frequency radiation every second through the body of the horse. It also contains a GPS component that communicates with global positioning satellites. It also communicates with the RFID chip implanted in the left side of every horse's neck, ensuring that the chip also emits radiation throughout the race. 
And because every racehorse wears horseshoes made of aluminum, which is one of the best conductors, the frequencies that are conducted from both the StrideSafe device and the RFID chip throughout the horse's body are absorbed and re-radiated by its four shoes. Each horse, then, carries not one, but six continuously radiating antennas throughout each race at Churchill Downs. So with 14 horses normally competing in each race, there are 84 antennas among animals in close proximity to one another running around the track. This is, uh, this is unbelievable. Yeah, th th yeah. Made, and this is all new. We've made horse racing into a high-tech enterprise. Correct. And on April 29th, Horses racing at Churchill Downs began to die during the races or suffer severe injuries during races that they were then euthanized. So many horses have died this spring that on June 2nd, it was announced that the spring meet at the Downs would be suspended as of June 10th. Officials at Churchill Downs are panicked because horses racing there have died in much larger numbers this spring than ever before. This is a sudden and unprecedented eight-fold increase in racehorse mortality. Officials have carefully inspected the track and every part of the racing grounds and have found no change in any part of it from previous meets and no reason for horses to be more prone to injury or collapse. But they have the same blind spot as the rest of society. They treat wireless devices and the radiation they emit as if they do not exist. This is an amazing story, really. Yeah. And a little frightening. There's no change that they can find at all, and all these horses are dying. There's got to be and some explanation. this is the first time that they have actually outfitted them with these antennas yeah. that are 2400 times a second. Transmitting, transmitting data to some tech center somewhere yeah, so that they can... We, because we can. I don't know. Anyway, that was just a report. There have been no science, obviously no scientific studies done to yeah. date. There probably will it's be. It's brand though. new. I mean, this is there's a lot of money at stake here. Rice horses are not. Yeah, I mean, cheap. if there was ever if there was ever an opportunity to get to get studies done, this would be it. Because, like you say, there's a lot of money at stake. People yeah. have a lot invested in these horses. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. On December 23, 1971, President Richard Nixon declared a war on cancer. In his speech that day, the president said, I hope in the years ahead we will look back on this action today as the most significant action taken during my administration. History had other plans for President Nixon, and today we remember him not for what he declared that day, but for other reasons. But back then, many Americans were optimistic about our chances of beating cancer. After all, we had sent a man to the moon and returned him safely to Earth, so there was no reason to think we couldn't figure out what was causing the epidemic of cancer and stop it in its tracks. But that's not exactly how things have worked out. Rates of almost every type of cancer have increased. Rates of childhood cancer have increased 1% every year for the past 25 years. Fewer people are dying from cancer, partly because we've developed drugs to help people manage their cancer. In fact, managing cancer as a chronic disease has become a multi-billion dollar industry, and partly because we count patients as survivors if they live for five years after diagnosis. Cancer remains a scourge of our society. According to the National Cancer Institute, more than 600,000 Americans will die this year from one of the many types of the disease. Despite the billions raised and spent on cancer research, the hoped-for cure remains elusive. Maybe we're looking in the wrong place. 
Maybe instead of spending time and money trying to determine exactly how each type of cancer works and hoping for some new blockbuster drug that will cure it, we need to look more closely at what's causing the disease in the first place. Maybe it's time for a new war on cancer, one that takes a cold, hard look at the things in our air, water, and food that can trigger the disease. This is an issue that's really close to my heart personally because of my family's experience with cancer. And I, I wrote this book because I wanted to dig in a little more and find out why this is happening and what's being done to try and address it and how the rest of us can pitch in. That's Christina Marusik, a reporter and author of a new book called, not surprisingly, A New War on Cancer. We started our conversation by asking Christina why she wrote the book. My younger sister was diagnosed with thyroid cancer when she was 25 years old, which is very young for a cancer diagnosis. And thyroid cancer tends to run in families, but no one else in our family had ever had thyroid cancer. So we were really left wondering whether environmental exposures might have played a role in her cancer. And that was something I started looking into at that time that happened around 2011. And then I wrote a five part series for Environmental Health News on the role that environmental exposures play in some of the high cancer rates we have in Pennsylvania, where my sister and I grew up, and in Western Pennsylvania specifically, where I live in Pittsburgh. My sister lives here too. She's doing great, I should say. Um, she's been in remission for 10 years, and she has two kiddos who I get to hang out with all the time. And I'm really grateful that um, you know we had the treatments available that we did to save her life. And in 2019, I was working as an investigative reporter covering environmental health. And I wrote this five-part series on cancer and the environment. And while I was working on that series, I learned a couple of things that were really shocking to me. And the main one was that since we've started tracking cancer rates in the 1970s, certain cancers have been steadily on the rise um, in the United States and at the global level, including childhood cancer and cancer in young adults, like my sister. While I was reporting that series, I spoke with a really brilliant researcher who's also a, a pediatrician and an epidemiologist, Dr. Phil Landrigan, who pointed out that the rise in childhood cancers over the last 50 years is too fast to be the result of genetic changes. He said genetic changes take place over centuries, not decades. And he also said um, this can't entirely be explained by improvements in our diagnostic tools. So for childhood cancer specifically, the most common childhood cancer is leukemia. And we diagnose leukemia the same way now that we did in the 1970s. So it's not like we're just seeing more of something that's always been there. So he said this is a real rapid increase in childhood cancer cases that we're seeing. And the older, only other explanation is the environment. And of course, you know, the environment is a really broad category. It includes things like our diet and exercise and smoking and drinking. But again, we were talking mainly about childhood cancer and kids generally don't smoke and drink, right? So those lifestyle factors play less of a role um, than they do for certain other cancer types. And then, you know, you might say, oh, they're their parents might be smoking or drinking um, during pregnancy or during early childhood, but we've seen a steady decline in parents smoking and drinking during pregnancy over the same time period, and yet childhood cancer rates are, are really skyrocketing. 
This is not really news to regular listeners of this show. For years, Doug and I have been covering the issue of chemicals in everyday products that are linked to an increase in cancer. Everything from pesticides to PFAS to plastics, the chemicals that supposedly make our life easier, are also increasing our chances of hearing the words no one wants to hear. You have cancer. I think this topic can be a little overwhelming, a little daunting. It's a sad and upsetting topic. I think, um, you know, one in three Americans can expect to get a cancer diagnosis at some point in their lives. And so most of us either have had our own personal experiences with cancer or have watched a loved one go through that. And so it's difficult, you know, it's relevant subject to a lot of people, but it's also a difficult one to grapple with. And so I really wanted to focus on solutions in my book. So certainly the book kind of lays out the scope of the problem and explains why we need to address it, but it's really focused on people who've devoted their lives to trying to reduce our exposure to carcinogens in our everyday world, who I found their stories really moving and inspiring. Um, And it made me feel hopeful about our ability to do something about this rather than just kind of overwhelmed and, you know, despairing about the enormity of this problem. Reducing our exposures to carcinogens is critical, but it's also difficult because many of the chemicals that cause cancer are in some of our most popular and profitable products. And over the past few decades, government regulators have had their hands increasingly tied by laws that make getting those products off the market really, really difficult. In the risk-benefit ratio applied to federal decision-making, all of the risks are taken by the public, while most of the benefits accrue to the manufacturers and shareholders of big corporations who have lobbied for the laws that keep harmful products on store shelves. A lot of times what we see referred to as prevention is actually early detection, which is not prevention, right? If you're detecting the disease, prevention has not occurred. (laughs) They were already looking for the disease. And the second is saying that, you know, all the focus is on these kind of individual lifestyle behaviors. And I do think, I want to acknowledge that the individual choices we can make about our diet and our exercise and alcohol and smoking, um, those are important and they're worth doing because they have additional health benefits beyond just lowering our cancer risk, right? There's lots of reasons to eat healthy and exercise and think about our lifestyle choices. So I would never want to discourage people from doing that. But I think <laughs> I think we reach a point where most people know that eating vegetables and exercising is good for you and smoking and drinking is bad for you, right? Do we need another public awareness campaign teaching people those things? So what about all the money that's been collected over the years through all the walks and the runs and the bake sales and the golf outings, all raising money for cancer research? Where is that money going? I think it's important to acknowledge that only 7 to 9% of global cancer funds go toward prevention right now. All the rest go toward treatment and cures. And the, the little bit, that paltry amount that does go toward prevention, as you mentioned, really tends to focus on our individual choices and very rarely acknowledges the systemic forces that raise our cancer risk. So things like air pollution, things like there are lots of cancer-causing chemicals showing up in tap water throughout the United States. 
lots of cancer causing chemicals in our food and in our cosmetics and personal care products. And that all comes down to our regulatory structure, right? And so really what I'm trying to do in this book is help us reframe the conversation about cancer prevention to say, yes, those individual choices are are important and worth thinking about, but there's a lot more we need to do. And one thing I heard again and again from the researchers and activists I interviewed in the course of writing the book was, we can't shop our way out of this. So, you know, even if you have a a PhD in chemistry, when you're reading ingredient lists and trying to avoid carcinogens, these chemicals and these harmful substances are just so ubiquitous that even with all the expertise in the world, you can't be a perfect individual consumer. And so we really need to turn to systemic change that'll protect all of us instead of telling people, you know, it's up to you to shop carefully and eat right and exercise. Unfortunately, even taking every opportunity to avoid cancer-causing chemicals in everyday products is not a guarantee of a cancer-free life. Genetics plays a key role in our susceptibility to certain cancers, loading the gun, epidemiologists call it. Then all we need is an exposure to pull the trigger. I interviewed an oncologist named Dr. Margaret Kripke for the book, and she told me she'd recently met a young man who, he was a long-distance runner, he ate really clean and healthy and organic, he had never smoked, and he was furious when he got a cancer diagnosis. He felt like he'd been lied to, felt like he'd been told he could control his cancer risk through all of these personal choices, and then It turns out that if you make all the right choices, you can still get cancer because we're just kind of constantly inundated with carcinogens in our lives. And, you know, our genetics do play a role, but generally the role they play is making us more or less susceptible to exposure to carcinogens. And while we can't control our genetics and our inherited risk, we can, like as a society, collectively control the cancer risk we get when we're out in the world. It's interesting to note that in all of the corporate-sponsored events around cancer, the word prevention rarely appears. Every October for Breast Cancer Awareness Month, millions of people across the country are encouraged to walk or run for a friend, a family member, or even themselves, all to raise awareness of breast cancer. But ironically, it's not the kind of awareness they need. Many of the giant corporations that use the pink ribbon in their advertising and promotion make and promote products that contain chemicals known to cause the disease. Few of the millions of people participating in those marches to raise awareness understand the cruel irony of their actions. So what does the future hold? How will we finally break the chemical industry's vice grip on government regulation and begin to hold manufacturers responsible for their products that can cause cancer? I do think we're at a moment where there is a lot of reason to hope and a lot of reason to think that we can push meaningful levers. So we've seen the EPA recently advancing bans on certain pesticides that are really harmful, for example. I think we're kind of at a turning point. I think there's this new level of receptiveness to this message. And certainly these wheels turn really slowly. We know that it takes a long time for federal legislation to change. But thankfully, we're not starting from scratch. There have been 
people working on this issue for decades and I cover a lot of that work in the book and they've seen a lot of small victories along the way and certainly I think it's not going to happen in one sweeping regulatory reform but I do think it's going to happen through lots of little piecemeal changes that can add up to make a big difference. Christina Marusik, author of A New War on Cancer, stories about individuals who are making a real difference in the struggle to find answers to one of our most complex medical political issues. Available now at your neighborhood bookstore or online at islandpress.org. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street News. Thanks to our special guest, Christina Marusik, our news editor, Ellen Weiniger, our engineer, Josh Lyman, our associate producer, Toby Ziegler, our social media director, Donna Moss, and our marketing director, Sam Seaborn. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street News. Thanks for listening. 